Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host Jim Thompson. Today we have a very special guest, Mr. Tony Perrier, who has a very diverse and extensive career, first as a chef, then in advertising, directing music videos, writing films for Hollywood, and also being an artist and co-writer on his hit comic series, Concrete Park. Thank you, Tony, for joining us today. I'm happy to be here, you guys. Thank you. You grew up in the Bronx. Is that, is that correct? No, actually, no, no. Um, uh, I'm from Queens in New York. Ah, you're from went, Queens. You went to yeah. school in the Bronx. Went to high school in the Bronx. So yes. in that regard, I am like the rep who currently represents that district, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who represents both a piece of the Bronx, but also Northern Queens, where I grew up. I grew up in a neighborhood called Corona, uh, in East Elmhurst and Corona in Queens. Um, I'm old enough. I'm 63 years old. So I was, I'm old enough that Malcolm X was our neighbor down the block. And oh, wow. you know, Malcolm X died in 1965, so that really dates me. But we knew Malcolm X. Also, I knew Louis Armstrong because Louis Armstrong lived in our neighborhood, lived in Corona. And that was a, a great honor. I only realized years later how awesome he was. I mean, we knew him as the local celebrity, Louis Armstrong. Um, so I, was, I grew up in Queens, went to high school in the Bronx, this high school called Bronx Science. Um, you know, so it's a big commute. You have to take the, the subway a long way. Um, uh, my, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a biracial kid in a, at a time when there weren't as many biracial kids as there are now. My dad's black, my mom's white. We lived in a black neighborhood in Queens. Um, the white side of uh, my family, my mother's family had disowned her for marrying a black guy. They told everybody she was dead. So I grew up in a black context in a, went to, I went to segregated schools. You understand? I was born before. The Voting Rights Act was right. So, so, so I, the, your parents got together in the 50s, 1950s? Yes, they did. They were married in 1955. You understand? Their marriage wasn't even legal in the United States, in many states in the Union, till 1966, I think, with the Loving decision. Yeah, um, that's right. So we, we, you know, we lived in New York, which was very accepting and very polyglot and mixed up. My, neighbor, my old neighborhood now is very, you know, uh, Latino and is Indian and, you know, everything else. But Back then, it was a black neighborhood, and we were very accepted. Yet we couldn't. We never traveled south. You know, we never went to visit the south or anything because you know my parents' marriage was illegal, and bad things could have happened. So, in that regard, I'm like Obama. You know, he's a. You know, Obama's born a day before me on August fourth. My birthday just passed. It's August fifth, and um, so his parents were thinking along those lines too. Obviously, you know, he's yeah, a little younger. Yeah, than that's me. true. Um, but in my time, that marriage was uh, not so popular or common um but as I say, and, I and, and, and you came out very light very light in, but but look, but with that and with your light eyes you you identify as, as african-american is that right absolutely and it's very funny i mean you know i'm looking at the for on zoom i come out very very pink but either way i'm light look at it, <laughs> and i'm like yes. this little secret agent of blackness you know because yeah. i could have passed or whatever but that was never a life choice that I, I could have made. It was the 60s. I mean, you have to understand, my first school was a segregated school by de jure. By law, it was segregated. By 1964, integration came to the North, and I was literally in the first busing in the North to achieve racial integration. I remember the white parents throwing garbage on us and everything. So wow. my life choices were kind of made back then. I was a black kid. And, of course, New York City is full of you know black people, quote, who look like me. What is race anyway? It's like a weird social construct, but because of the times I come from, well, I've always identified as black. And, and there, there's definitely a cultural aspect to that. There's yes. an ethnic aspect, which, uh, which uh, 
so it's not just the color of the skin a lot of mm -hmm. times. So, Tony, I have a question yeah. before going back into, like, early comics and things. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's it's related. How was it when your your ex-wife, Erica, would say uh, to the press things like, he's the, uh, he's the blackest white man I've ever known, and those kinds of things? Sometimes you get labeled as white. Does it bother you at all? No, no. You know, I mean, um, as I say, I, I should write a book because race is this interesting social construct in America. I just read a beautiful article by a, a light-skinned black woman who was talking about taking down Confederate monuments. I and read she, that piece. Right, and she said, you want to see a Confederate She's monument? A Confederate, yes. She said, I have rape-colored skin. There's a, this weird reason, because of slavery, we had that one-drop rule where if a child had one drop of black blood, they were black. Well, that obviously served white masters who needed as many slave bodies as possible so that old master could have several bastard black children, they all became his slaves, no matter how light they were, et cetera, et cetera. I come from a line of lighter skinned black people, you know, um, and, uh, but, but again, race being a social construct, but also a, a social category and a uh, cultural category. Yes, I grew up identifying as a black child, being in school, the school integration did that to me as well. I don't mind whatever people want to call me, that, that's fine. Yeah, that that was a great piece on the on the I I'm yeah. a Confederate statue. You know, I'm yes. a reminder of. Yes, yeah. I mean here I am. I'm America's legacy, and all of us. You know, most black people in this country have some mixture of white in them. You know, etc. So when you were growing up, did you face any prejudice uh, or or any issues on the other side? Were you ever um, derogatorily called called white by by? Yeah. Um, by no. others, so you you were fully embraced. Um, I was very lucky, and the black community has traditionally been embracing, by and large. I, I'll hear I meet light skinned black people said, "Oh, I had it tough." You know, that wasn't my experience. I was a lucky kid, and um, you know, I grew up in a context in New York City. I mean, there's lots of Puerto Rican kids who look like me. There's lots of mixed kids in New York. You yeah, know, and, yeah. and um, the black community was very accepting. So I never had an issue on that side of the street. No. Yeah, I'm I'm about the same age as you, one or two years younger, and mm. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, where those statues. Oh are. my God! So I, in in my mind, they all talk about preserving history. To me, taking them down is a historical moment. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that's that's history. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. History is a continuity; it doesn't stop in 1865 with the demise of the the the, the lost cause and all that stuff. No, 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 no. History goes on. I'm history. And what I do here matters. What we do here matters. You know, that's history too. You're right. So let's 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 talk about comics for yes, a little sir. bit. So yes, sir. so because I know the time period that you're you're coming on because it's not different from mine. Um, right. Did you? Um, when did you start reading? When I was a little kid, there were comics in the barber shop. Mm -hmm. There were comics everywhere. There were comics at the drugstore and comics at Woolworths. Remember Woolworths and all that. Oh kind yeah. Of stuff? Is this the early '60s then? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, grew up loving comics. I, from a very early age, I was a Marvel fan, not a DC fan. I found the DC comics of the early 60s to be very corny, where, um, you know, the, 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 the Lightning Lad and all this kind of, you know, the, like the, the sort of corny <laughs> stories, the imaginary stories they had to have Superman having, you know. What if Superman was, you know, married to Lois Lane? All that kind of stuff. I thought the Marvel comics of the early 60s, of course, this was the, gold, the Silver Age, whatever. 
it was they were amazing and they were yeah. cool and they and they operated in the superheroes operated in a recognizable New York City. And I love that. I love that, that there were Spider-Man yeah. swinging through Manhattan and there was the Fantastic Four. They had a building, you know, and to me that that was very grounded, very real. They all had problems, etc. I was a Marvel guy from early on in the, in the early 60s. So you could, do you do did you like the Kirby Ditko aesthetic? Were you were you looking for any particular thing when you're looking at that stuff? Well, it, you know, at the time, at, at first, I didn't recognize the names at all. It didn't mean anything to me. But the Marvel comics also had a certain look. And that, to me, that was all Kirby, Kirby, Kirby. That was the, you know, the way um, the Fantastic Four looked, the way Thor swinging his hammer could reach all the way back, way back here in a way no DC superhero ever did because they drew um, from a very square sort of proscenium arch looking at Superman. Superman back then was being drawn by people like Wayne Boring and... and um, I mean, you know, Carmine Infantino was about as good as it got in DC Comics, and he'd have the Flash, you know, running like this. But that was nothing to the amazing perspective, the amazing cosmic feel of Thor and Fantastic Four and all those comics. It's amazing how many of those comics Jack Kirby was drawing in any given month. But uh, that's the look I liked. I later realized who it was that was doing all that. Now, your parents were both artists, um, correct? Yes, I mean... my dad worked as a salesman. He was my, my father was a liquor salesman and he was a black guy who would go out into black markets in places like Cincinnati, Cleveland, Detroit. These were his markets, um, Buffalo, you know, um, you know, the, the real tank towns in the Midwest. And my father was the guy from the head office who'd come out to the liquor stores and wholesalers in the black markets and say, come on, we got a special two for one on Dewar's white label scotch. That's what my father did. But he had been he had been a photographer. He was a photographer in World War II. He was over there in Europe. Uh, you know, he landed at D-Day, all that stuff. My mother went to art school. She went to what was then called Carnegie Tech. Uh, she went to school with Andy Warhol. She was from that generation. Back when right. his name was Warhola, you know, a Polish kid in her art school. Yeah. So they both were artists, you know. And so I could draw from an early age, and I they always had me, you know, making stuff and doing stuff with my hands. So, you know, that was my background, yeah. But at the same time, your mom wasn't thrilled about your interest in comics, right? No, no. You've got my whole biography here somehow. You're like probably from the CIA or something. That's exactly right. (laughs) Like many kids of that time, I would take my allowance and I was supposed to get my milk milk or whatever, lunch or what have you at school. And I would go and buy comic books and I'd have to hide them from my mom. And every mom who's ever had a, a boy kid knows that the kid is hiding the comics under the bed or, you know, somewhere in the closet. Behind. They were on to me, but there was we had this, you know, this sort of uh, charade where I would hide the comics and my mother would tacitly, I guess, go along. Yes. So um, you, you talk about Kirby, it seems like, more than, than, than Ditko or Romita yeah. or any of the others. Um, we're going to get to that more when we get to uh, Concrete Park because sure. I think Kirby is a huge influence. He's a huge influence, and I knew him. I knew him as a kid, so... But that was what I was going to ask yeah. you. I had read that you you had met him as a kid in, in yeah. New York? Yes, sir. This okay, is, so yeah. please tell us about that. Okay, so the, some, somehow uh, the interesting comics kept, you know, I, I, all through, I'm talking about 10, 11, 12 years old, that, those, those key ages, I started to realize who was who as far as on the masthead. I liked the Ditko work a lot, too, and I loved... Ditko had like the most incredible hands in yeah. the comic book business when Dr. Strange would cast his spells. You know the Ditko hands, right? Absolutely. Yeah, 
when Spider-Man would shoot the, the web, you know, the whole yeah, deal. Perfect. I like the Ditko stuff very much too. And he only did a small run really when you look at the whole history. A small run on Spider-Man, but it was amazing. And everybody knows the Ditko thing where Spider-Man is lifting the giant piece of machinery off. He, you know, he has right. to, you know, great, right? I love all that stuff. And Doctor Strange looks so scary the way Ditko drew him with his narrow face and he, you know. They drew, he drew him like a supervillain to me. Yeah. I like Vincent Price or something, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But the but the stuff I like, the stuff that caught my imagination as a storyteller kid was Kirby, Kirby, Kirby. It was, you know, Tales of Asgard. Amazing. And they used to sell these little paperback books. They'd be about this big, the collected Tales of Asgard, for instance. And in black and white. And even in black and white, that artwork was so dynamic. So to make a long story short, by the time I was in junior high school and then high school, I'm talking about... 1971, 72, 73, they were having some of the first New York Comic Cons. And really, these were crude, crude affairs where people just sold crates, just had crates of comic books. That was really it. Plus, and, and it would be in some crummy hotel. There was a hotel that's built on next to Grand Central Station. It was called the Commodore after Commodore Vanderbilt. Sure. It's now Trump, blah, 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 Trump International or something. Trump bought it in, in the 70s, <laughs> 80s. Uh, sorry, but um, back then it was a crummy smoke-filled hotel. People smoked in indoors. It's hard to yes. even conjure that world. But um, they would have these comic cons, and they'd have these guys with the rack, the racks and racks of crates of crates of comics. Then they would also have ballroom events in the hotels, and and there you could see Jack Kirby, and he would speak. What, and what year? What year do you think this was? Seventy-one, seventy-two. Okay. Okay, it was early seventies. Bill Suling, who had these yeah, comic cons, yeah. right? So this is a Suling convention then, right? And I knew Phil through a kid who I, I later met Phil through a kid I went to high school with. But even at the time, like seventy-one, so I was still in junior high. <clears throat> you'd go. Kirby would speak. Kirby had this really weird backwards way of talking that was not that didn't make a lot of sense. I got to say, as a kid, yeah, like uh, Yoda the, or something. The, the, right. I mean, the, the one thing I ever heard him say that made sense was. You know, when you and I get angry, we kick the kick the can down the street or something. When Thor gets angry, he knocks the top off a mountain, and so that's 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 the whole thing. He says, "Look at the Hulk; he just gets mad all the time." Well, that made sense, but a lot of the stuff Kirby said, I couldn't even follow it because it was very non sequitur, whatever. But you could also see him half an hour later in the room with the guys with the crates of comics, and he'd just be standing there holding court. And kids like me would bring our drawings, and he'd look at them, and my drawings were awful, you know. And he'd, he'd be encouraging. He'd say, yeah, try a little harder. I think you're, you're lazy here. You're not, you know, like that. So he was a real mentor figure to a whole clique of kids. who, And we'd go day after day to see Jack Kirby. It was just a subway ride away from me on the number seven train. So, you know, I, I would see Jack Kirby. Can I tell you a Jack Kirby story? I, I've told this. Yeah, please, please. Absolutely. One day we're in one of those rooms. He's smoking a cigar. Everybody's smoking. It's a little room and there's guys with crates of comic books. And New York being New York, um, there, was, there was always an edge of violence. Um, so that I'm there showing Kirby my drawings. You, suddenly from across the room, you hear someone say, motherfucker. And then boom, boom, boom. And you hear the sound of a fight. Just boom. And that violence fills the room. And, and two guys, or someone was stealing a comic or something, and two guys are having a punch-up, you know, on, on the carpet, this ugly stained carpeting, and they're fighting and they're grabbing each other's shirts like men do, you know, and this blood is coming out. And Kirby, you know, we're all for a moment like this, we're frozen. I'm a little kid, and I was short for my age. And Kirby, who was very short, 
Kirby goes, he takes me by the hand. He goes, come here. I think we can take these guys. <laughs> I think we can take these guys. So he, I'm like terrified. You know, I'm like, Dude. He pulls me across the room. This is a true story. And he, and he confronts these guys. He says, hey, why don't you guys pick on someone your own size? And he meant it. He absolutely meant it. Like he would fight these two guys right then and there. And because he was Jack Kirby and because he had that authority and because he had gray in his hair and because, for a lot of reasons, they he, stopped. He, he, he was probably 40, uh, 45 no, or something. At this point. He was born in, I think, 1917. Yeah. So, you know, uh, 50, uh, you know, so he'd be 53, 54. 53, 54. Like okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You so know, then short little guy with a cigar, but just tough as hell. Oh, that's great. An authentically tough guy. And he says, why don't you pick on somebody your own size? Like a line of dialogue from a Cagney movie or something like as, as corny as that. Why don't you pick on somebody your own size? They stop the fight and they, you know, and then they carry on and everything. And Kirby, we go back over and start talking about comics and drawing again. But I thought he, at that moment, I thought he was God. I thought he was like, you know, he walked on water to me. That was my, yeah. idea. you know, that's when, my story. When you came uh, out here in 1990 to Los Angeles, yes. did you look him up? Did you see him? No, um, no, I didn't think to at all. I was at that time. I was very much in this movie head. I had been directing music videos back in New York. And so uh, when I got here, I was so happy. And I was living in the Valley, working for Disney. Then I moved to Venice. And to this day, I don't drive. I don't know how to drive. I never learned how. I I was going to ask you that because Variety mentioned that in their article uh, in 1995. Yeah, yeah. Never learned how to drive. So it it didn't even occur to me to like go out to where Kirby was in Thousand Oaks or any of that stuff. No, I didn't do it. And I regret that. But that's, you know. Okay, so so when do you uh, sort of age out of comics as a kid? Uh, high school, or did did you follow Kirby over to uh, DC? Oh man, that, and those oh. were my high school years. I thought that was the greatest thing ever. I remember writing papers in high school at Bronx Science. I was a very disaffected kid. By that point, I wasn't going to a lot of high school. I was a real truant. I was a real troublemaker. I was spraying my name on you know Bronx High School of Science. If you look at it, it's built diagonally across the street from what was then called the Pelham subway yards where they parked all the number six trains and the, you know, all the IRT trains were parked right there. Well, it was the 1970s. We were like, we sneak into the subway. So I didn't do a lot of high school, but um, the, the thing that engaged me was English class. And sure enough, I was up here writing papers and then homework about the new gods and all that stuff. I thought that was great. Excuse oh, me. that's, that's really interesting. Cause I had read where you, said you trained yourself to not draw like Kirby, that it was important to you not yeah. to, not to do yeah. that. And, and I mean, this is a compliment. Yeah. I think you write like Kirby in some <laughs> sections. <laughs> and I know some people, but there was, there's a quote in, in uh, concrete park, uh, the strangers too fast, uh, too strong, kill him and kill Silas for wealth for and power. And it's like the, the the cadence of that and the rhythm is so Kirby-esque. Thank you. I never would have thought of that, but that's a good point. That's true. That's true. You know, people talk shit about how he wrote um, the Fourth World comics. I thought they were great. I thought the Pact. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. You know. One of my favorite comics of all time. You know, and, 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 and there you yeah. have it. You read that dialogue in, in just in a couple of parts. Thank but you. it's it's there. You know, Whereas, and, and then I'll just, we'll talk about it later, but the other part you do on that is that 
when you get to the the um, the gate, the uh, yeah, the Kurtzberg Gate, the Kurtzberg Gate. I think it's not really just. I mean, obviously, it's not a gate; it's a person. But right. I think it's almost you having to do to face the the Kirby. That's heritage. exactly what it was. You 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 hit the nail on the head because everybody. Um, it's just you know, it's just like Miles Davis would say about Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong played more horn than anybody else has ever played. And if you pick up the horn, you must deal with that giant mountain in your road, which is Louis Armstrong. And you can go against him, you can go with him, but you must deal with it. You know, black people have this great expression in the black church uh, that you've heard repeated in R&B songs. When, when speaking of God, they say, so tall you can't get over him, so low you can't get under him, so wide you can't get around him. You must come in through the door. And so the Kurtzberg Gate is my way of saying Kirby is there in the road. You must come in through the door. You can't get around him. And you, you do it with the nine-panel fight grid. Yes. It's so <laughs> iconic. Yes. I saw that, and I was like, I know exactly what he's doing. Thank you. And that was an amateur's crude attempt, you're exactly right, to sort of process that. That thing with Captain America fighting Batrock. Yep. You know, unbelievable. The two-gun kid, I think, gets one like that, too. He does, exactly. I was going to say the same thing. You know, and... Um, I Kirby, think there's a bullseye one, too, in the film. Oh, really? there's, yeah, there's a few. Kirby influenced me in so many ways, including he did a thing that I love in another author, Charles Dickens, where Charles Dickens will have these great names, um, Magwitch and Mr. Sourberry and Oliver Twist, you know, those great names. And Kirby would do that over and over again with Armageddo. And even the great one is Scott Free, Mr. Miracle, Super Escape Artist. That's a great... Dickens-esque name. So if you look at Concrete Park, we have um, Scare City, yeah. which, comes, which is, a to me, channeling Kirby. And what, Clack Clack Guns? Is that what it was? Say say this again, please. Clack Clack, clack Guns? The, the, the weapons? Oh, the guns also go like that, yes. Oh, yes, the Clack Clack. Onomatopoeia, thank you. Thank there's you. That's, a, that's, in Commandy, there's an insect with that name, right? Oh, Click Click. Click, click. That's click, yeah. yeah. But a, I but I thought of that. Yeah. But but clack clack in the sound effects. Yes. It's so it's so Kirby. Yes, and I, I'll I'll tell the world. I mean, um, when I when when I came up with the name Scare City for a minute, I went, "Thank you, Jack." That's a to me. That's a kind of Kirby esque beat. Yeah, I, that's like a city on apocalypse or something. Yes, apocalypse, Armageddon, Scott Free. What a great name. Command D is a hysterical name. You know, commanded. Got for, it. For me, for me, reading reading that, I I thought it was like you know how Kirby took over the losers at DC. Yes. I felt like Kirby had been hired to redo Hundred Bullets, and that's what <laughs> that's what your book was to some. Degree. There is there's a strong. I can't you know there is a strong strong Kirby influence. I thought he he opened up as a kid. He opened up my imagination. He did that thing writers are supposed to do is make you want to be a writer. You know how. The Beatles made more people want to join bands and be in bands. And, yeah. um, and, and, and similarly for the punk movement, uh, 1976, 77, 77, the Ramones tour England. Suddenly, every kid in England has got a punk band. You know, that's Kirby, is that he makes you want to have a comic book. We were interviewing Gary Growth, and he, he talked about the influence of Woodward and Bernstein sending everybody of his era to, to journalism school. Absolutely, absolutely. Which and, is what I majored in for that exact reason. Oh, really? How yeah. about that? How about that? 
Wow. I, 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 and that was a myth for our time, wasn't it? In the 70s. You know, that was a real. Sadly. All right. So we, I only got like five minutes to get us through at your advertising <laughs> career. So um, you go to Brown yeah. uh, uh, as, a, as an art major or. Yes. yes. And, and, but at this and, point, not to do comics, obviously. No, no. You know, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, and again, I, I kind of I'm the board's biggest goof off. I mean, I kind of goofed off at Brown, too. But the Brown Art Department is built on the site of H.P. Lovecraft's old house. And um, oh, wow. <laughs> I always like that, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, you're, <laughs> so, major- so you're, ch- you're channeling Kirby Energy and it's a metaphysical, otherworldly Lovecraftian things, too, every now and then. You know, uh, in a different world, that, that, that perfect son of Lovecraft and Kirby is Mike Mignola. <laughs> there you go. That's true. Look at his work. But um, yes, yeah, so I went to Brown. Uh, became a chef there. That's where I got into the, the, the chefing thing. You know, I paid my way through school by doing, by working in restaurants. And after you got suspended a few times too, right? Kicked out of Brown five times. I still don't have a college degree after four complete years of Brown. I'm a high school graduate, you know, um, but I was, I was doing uh, political organizing and, and uh, you know, every, everything that there was, I was against it. There was apartheid, there was nuclear power, there was everything that I was that guy. So I was cooking in restaurants and going all over New England, speaking and doing all that stuff. And, and what, uh, what year is this part? You, would you this is 78 through 83. 78. Okay. Okay. And so, uh, so why cooking? How did that come about? Did your Well, you know, have... we, we had cooks in the family. Again, light-skinned black people who got to work in the house. You know, um, my father's people, my, his mother and all his aunts, they were those big, fat black women who'd come to Thanksgiving with the two turkeys in the band, you know, and they were those <laughs> women, and I learned to cook from them. Um, and I, I cooked at Brown in the student, in the dining hall. It was awful. You know, you'd see a beautiful meal come by on, on doing the dishes, you know, a beautiful plate. Somebody just stubbed out a cigarette in it, you know, because the privilege of Ivy League kids, you know, but I, I, I learned to cook. And so I ended up, Till about 1983, being the chef at this gourmet seafood joint. A lot of mob guys came in. That influenced my later career. I rode a racer because I knew these mob guys. Um, so I was a cook. And then I went to New York City. And summer of 83, a very important summer because it, uh, I was also working as a DJ in clubs. And I would, suddenly music video came in. And 1983 was the summer of Michael Jackson's Beat It. That yeah. huge video, Billie Jean. Kids would pay to come to come to venues I would host just to see the videos because a lot of kids, especially black kids in Providence, Rhode Island, didn't have MTV yet. But they'd come and pay me a couple bucks at the door to go see these videos and dance to Michael Jackson. And then I got the idea, oh, man, I'd love to be a music video director. So I went to New York City in the summer of 83. And I'd heard that all these guys directing these videos had worked in advertising. And so that sort of got in my head. So I applied for work at some of these ad agencies and the place where I got the most traction was a place called J. Walter Thompson, big ad agency. They had the Marines and Ford Motor and Kodak, all these big brands. And the creative director there was Jim Patterson. He's now James Patterson, this big right. you know, novelist, the world's best-selling novelist. World's best-selling novelist. So, so he didn't seek you out. Some some reports have that he saw your no, no, designs. No, no. You went and applied for the job. Yeah, and I, did, I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I had some storyboards I had drawn, thinking that would be the thing. And um, they kept passing me up the line. The different art directors at Thompson said, oh, you ought to talk to Jim. And I'm like, who the fuck is Jim? I'm being fobbed off on some Jim guy. Jim <laughs> turned out to be James Patterson, and he was the creative director. And he, he, had, he had written the jingle, Aren't You Hungry for Burger King Now? He was the guy who uh, realized that everybody watching TV late at night, they were stoned, they were hungry. 
So he would have Elizabeth Shue, the Burger King girl. She became later the movie star, Elizabeth Shue, but she would yeah. be like, they'd show big food like this. And then she'd go, come on, we got you. Didn't we get you? You're hungry. You know you're hungry. So Are this you? was after Burger King went through its its flame broiled period and and then hired two different uh, ad agencies and there was a, there was a real attempt to up their their awareness was well, this no, a I mean, new ad campaign that you were working on no i mean this was let's see 83 84 85 86 when i was working on it thompson had the burger king account and had successfully positioned themselves as better than mcdonald's tasting better than mcdonald's right the, the burger wars the Burger Wars, that was exactly the time. And Patterson hired me, among other things, because he liked the fact I had no advertising background. They had a lot of people working there who had gone to school at the University of Texas and all these other schools that have advertising majors. He thought it was cool to have an amateur and also somebody who'd been a chef. He said, just make the food look pretty, man. Come on, because the food yeah. didn't look pretty. So as it was because of your, uh, you being a chef and your sense of food design is what caught yes. you. Yes, and also I could, I could express myself visually. I could draw storyboards and yeah, I don't know. He was that kind of guy who would hire a weirdo hire yeah. to almost to piss his other creatives off to be like, look, I'm hiring guys off the street who are chefs. So you guys better step up your game. And it was part, it's a strategic hire too. It was, I didn't know what I was doing. Did but, you do um, Goodyear too? I'm sorry? Did you do Goodyear as well? Yes, I worked on Goodyear for a while, but Goodyear was the most corporate client we had. Very, you know, I did print ads for Goodyear. But um, man, they were, that was like, they, they were so conservative. I mean, Burger King was conservative. I'll tell you a quick story. We would go flying down to meet the, the franchisees of Burger King. Their headquarters were in Miami. And you'd meet these guys. They were all from the Midwest with plaid pants and white belts and white shoes. Those were the clients. And they would look at our work for Burger King and they'd say, you know, you know, boys, it's creative. It's a little too creative. So can you scale it back by about 20%? So well, yeah, that was the brief. 20% less creative, yes, sir. You know, huh. that was advertising. So, All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn you over to Alex with the, you're there, we're, we know what you're doing, but then you have some kind of eye injury or something, right. an accident. Right. Oh, my God. So, so, so you're working on, uh, uh, oh, on advertising, it. design, and then there was a temporary blinding. What exactly yeah. happened? I was, if you can imagine this, I mean, I was being paid nothing too. They used to say advertising is a great job if your parents can afford to send you, uh -huh. you know, so I, I was work I was making $16,000 a year, but Patterson gave me the assignment of making the corporate film every year. There's like a corporate Christmas film. You can imagine there were 2000 people working there in this big Madison Avenue headquarters. It was on Lexington, but it was, you know, very much Madison Avenue. And so I made the Christmas film. And one day I'm filming the Christmas film with a super eight camera. Cause you know, we did different media. Super 8 video, but and I scratched my eye with the rubber eyepiece of the camera. The okay, whole, it was a rental. So it, was, it was like a uh, like a corneal abrasion or a corneal ulcer or something. Scratch my cornea, simple as that. Scratch my cornea, got a bad infection. The infection went to my other eye as well because oh no, eardrops communicate. You know, were, were you wearing like contact lenses? No, just scraped my cornea and kept on working. But by that night, I was like ah, in incredible pain. It's very painful. Okay. So uh, I went to the emergency room. I had this high fever, blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, really? Uh, they had to pack my body in ice, all this dramatic shit, right? The fever came down, blah, blah, blah. I had bandages on both my eyes. When I, when I went to the eye doctor afterwards, I had an old German-Jewish eye doctor named Dr. Frankfurt who'd been in the camps, and he had the big purple tattoo like on his arm, Dr. Frankfurt. So he didn't give you any bullshit. He looked at my eyes, and he was like, I'm very sorry. you never see again. Hmm. I'm like, what? He said, I'm sorry. you never see again. <laughs> 
So this was like, there's like a lot of corneal scarring and things. Yes, in both eyes, it was black. Just fucking black. Forgive my language, that's how I talk, I'm from New York. It's okay. Yeah. But yeah, so it was very bad and very scary, but over the course of a year, he sent me to see these specialists who, you know, they freeze the surface of your corneas and they scrape them with a scalpel, literally like some tor- the torture of the damned, you know, it was, it was crazy. But over the course of a year, I got my eyesight back. Yeah, that's good. And so they scraped the scar tissue off. It kind of healed. They'd give you some drops and things. Yeah. It was a long-term process. Yeah, it's like plastic surgery. You know, let's, let's, let's diminish that scar. You got it exactly right. And it was weird because Patterson, you know, I'm tapping my way through Midtown Manhattan on Lexington Avenue with my little cane. And Patterson was like, you know, I can't fire you. That would really be against the law because you're handicapped. I can't fire you. But now you can't, you know, be an art director anymore. So you got to write the commercials. There so he go. had me writing commercials and he was really a writing mentor. He was a very mean, you know, I, I love him, but he's a mean, unforgiving son of a bitch too. Uh-huh. And he uh, was, was, a he very East, was he very East coast in his mentality? Uh, East coast. I mean, he was very, how do I say this? I've met people who are smarter than Jim Patterson, but I never met anybody who used more of his intellectual horsepower for, for his work. His, his mind was very organized like that. Everything was on yellow legal pads. To this day, he has 15 books being written by different ghostwriters, and he's got them all on legal pads, and he just organized and focused <laughs> and hardworking. And he was very unforgiving of people who didn't work hard like that. Yeah. So his work ethic was like, like this. I see. And he scared us all to death. We were all scared to disappoint him. So that made me a writer. And he would take a blue pencil to your shit and just be like, no, you said that already. It's redundant. You don't have to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a great editor. But he you know? trained you at writing. Is that what you yes, would say? very much, very much. And so by 87, I was trying to write my first screenplays. Mm-hmm. And they were bad. I, I remember once going to Patterson, asking him to invest, you know, because 87 was like the summer of She's Gotta Have It. Yeah. And I wanted to make a movie like that, too. I, I said, I could do that. I need investors. So, so basically, writing and directing, because you, 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 all of that was in your going on in your mind in the yes, later. Sir. Yes, sir. And, and and were you also directing the music videos around this time, or was that before that? Or a couple years later. About that was later. Back. Okay, cool. 88, 89, 90. Okay. But by eighty-seven, I'm thinking I want to be Spike Lee. And I wrote a script. I went to Patterson, uh, asked him to invest, and he said, "You know, it's just not funny. It's not funny." I was like, "Oh, this is so." And he said, "And for my nickel, which by the way, you're not getting." <laughs> you need to rewrite this whole thing you know that's how he would speak to you he was so tough but without a tough obi-wan kenobi like that or whatever without a tough mentor i wouldn't be the writer i am i think i have a decent work ethic now but it's thanks to him yeah, i see that's great yeah because uh, so you wouldn't you would say you're more creative rather than rigid and disciplined but then he kind of put some of that discipline into you oh my god that that creative work means nothing if you don't organize your shit and make sure, you know, it's great you have something creative, but we need it Monday, you know, and, and 9.30 on Monday won't do. The meeting's at 9, period. If you don't, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was tough like that. So, yes, we worked weekends. Um, we all wanted to please him, and, and it, it made me a good writer, I think. I mean, it made me at least a hardworking writer. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that that's that work ethic's really important. So yeah. then tell us how uh, what then tell us about the aspirations to become the next uh Spike Lee and then start right. to direct the music videos cuz there were music videos LL Cool J, K Solo, EPMD. T- tell that's us correct. about that. Um I was trying to, you know, because I could draw storyboards, 
I, I, at that time, you know, music videos were blowing up. I knew a couple people. So I'd, I'd go, um, you know, that song rhinestone cowboy where you're walking yeah. up and down the streets of Broadway. That was me. Like, you know, I, I swore I was never going to be like my father, like a salesman, but here I was on Broadway with my little case of samples in this case, <laughs> storyboards. Like an encyclopedia salesman or something. Yes. Like, like Willie fucking Loman. And I'm knocking on the door of like Russell Simmons, Def Jam and other record labels that were all on Broadway or, you know, either in Times Square or on lower Broadway down in the village. And um, I never got a job from Russell Simmons. To this day, I, I hold a grudge, you know. Um, but I started getting jobs from these other hip, small hip hop labels. And there was a label up on Broadway called Sleeping Bag Records. And they, I did their corporate film and then I did a video for them uh, with, with Bismarck E. I mean, yeah. this is the kind of place to end um, you know, uh, KRS-One, they worked for Sleeping Bag. And then finally, I got to do EPMD, who was their big, uh, their big artist, you know, EPMD. And uh, did that video, and that led to doing K-Solo. And the EPMD video had LL Cool J in it, so I got to work on an LL Cool J project. So suddenly I was, you know, I was working, but the budgets for these were microscopic. And if you went over budget, that came out of your pocket. So I think I lost money on all the videos I ever did. But Oh, man, okay. That was a definitely probably learning experience, I'm sure. Great learning experience. Great, um, great to be in the editorial, you know, when you're putting it together and you realize, oh, God, I didn't shoot my coverage. What am I going to do? I did a, the video I did for EPMD was called uh, You Had Too Much to Drink. And it's a simple thing about a guy getting drunk. And the chorus is, you overdid it, Holmes. You had too much to drink. I'm sitting in the editorial bay and the, the editor is saying to me, you didn't shoot it, Holmes. <laughs> we don't have enough to cut, you know, so... Those were learning experiences. Uh, and so, <laughs> so then, um, and then you were at, how was LL Cool J and Biz Markie and them uh, to work with in the late eighties or in the uh, well, yeah, late eighties, early nineties? Well, I mean, EPMD, one guy was hardcore business, Parrish Smith. He was hardcore. His partner, Eric Sermon, Eric Sermon's all like this. Eric Sermon had kind of a mush mouth. He talked like this, you know, what's up? How you doing? Where's the dances at? I want to see the dances. What's the dance? You know, like that. But um, they were business like LL Cool J, a lovely guy. But he, he was no, he would come on set and get everybody high. You know, 11 a.m., the set is working really great. We're filming, everything's great. <laughs> Noon, everyone's having lunch. LL Cool J brings all this weed. You know, one o'clock, everybody's like, let's shoot it. You know, they're like, null and void. You know, there was that. There was that. I liked LL Cool J. He uh, queens like me, but, but LL Cool J brought, brought the, the buzz and everybody got high and then everybody was useless. So yeah. was, uh, I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm having a great time. Jack Kirby, LL Cool J, all in one thing. This is a lot of fun. I'm telling you. I've lived a long time and I've had this weird, colorful life. That's true. I'm, I'm very lucky. <laughs> you know. um, so now, um, and then this is kind of a sequitur to 1990, but um, yeah. there's a quote that, um, and Jim and I were discussing your, your 1995 variety article yesterday, but mm. there's a sentence, can a former chef in Madison Avenue man that's the advertising reference. A self-proclaimed dilettante who paints, writes, cooks, composes, and computes, but never learned how to drive, find happiness in Hollywood. So <laughs> tell us about five years earlier in 1990, you were selected for the inaugural class of the Walt Disney Company's writer program. There's a right. lot of interesting writers that came out of that as well. Um, uh, writers from Mad Men, Once Upon a Time, Psych, um, yes. Chicago Fire. So tell us about getting accepted into that. You know, Walk us through that process. Sure. The picture I wrote that wasn't funny, that Jim Patterson said he wasn't—I wasn't getting his dime for it or his nickel. Um, a black producer in New York City had read it, and she recommended me to the Disney program. 
and it was 1990. They were looking for minority writers. And again, I mean, here's a, a whole question about race, a social construct. This, the, the Disney program at the time was called the Disney Minority Writers Fellowship. Oh. It was that because Jeffrey Katzenberg really was stung by criticism. He was running the studio. He was stung by criticism from the NAACP that all of Hollywood studios had a horrible record behind the camera in terms of hiring minorities. But Disney was the most egregious offender of all. So he created this program, very proactive. Let's go get a bunch of black writers. Let's train them up, you know, minority writers of all kinds, all stripes. Let's train them and really show the world that we're committed. Wow, that's cool. So they did that program. They had an agreement with the Writers Guild, paradoxically, that they, they couldn't pay us what a normal guild writer would be getting. You know, back then the Writers Guild minimum was like 50 grand. They paid us 30 grand or like three-fifths of what a, a guild writer would be getting. <laughs> really? So it was like that a was the three-fifths compromise. Compromise. What the heck? Right there. But for $30,000, I was very happy to take it. I was broke. I was missing Keith in New York City. I was really, you know, things were bad. I was, I was starving. So I came out to California only to discover that the first class of the Disney Minority Writers Program looked a lot like me. In other words, it was a bunch of very, very light-skinned, could pass for white almost, black writers and minority right. writers. There was a right. Latina writer named uh, Natalie Chaidez, whom I worked for just last year on Queen of the South. But Natalie Chaidez is a blue-eyed, blonde, very Anglo-looking Latina, you know. And there were several of Maya Forbes who could pass for white, looks like me. You know, she ended up writing Monsters, Inc. and all these pictures. But so Disney had, you know, I, I sort of fit in. Um, and I was one of those acceptable Hollywood black people uh, for Disney. So that's that got me started, though. Learned a lot there. So, 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 so there yeah. was like, I'm glad to be here. But then there's also a little like, that's a little suspicious that it's like the lights. Dude. Yeah. So it's like, it's like a double-edged kind of, I mean, life's double-edged, I guess. Sometimes. Life is like that. And at the time I was like, well, I'll take it because right. they, they promised to get us into the guild. They promised to introduce us to a lot of people. That didn't really happen, but um, they did do things like they brought in Robert McKee, the guy who wrote that book story sure. for an intensive three day thing. We were locked in a room for three days with Robert McKee, who was like an old alky who like was late for his first drink. <laughs> uh, you know, so sort of like a mean guy. I, I hate to say this. I'm probably what's the word? Um, slurring him or uh, you know libeling him. But he, you know, he's a mean guy. But his his teaching was great. I mean, Robert McKee knows what he's talking about right. that story. And thanks to him, I wrote the pictures that got me some success. So there you go. So now you were writing uh, scripts for Disney as part yes, of. And, and how long was the program exactly? It was a year for each person, but they re-upped me for a second year. So we're talking ninety one, ninety two. Um, it was the time when um, it was like the beginning of the downslide of Eddie Murphy's career, but Eddie Murphy was still the biggest black thing. Right. In so a typical pitch to me from a Disney executive would be you fill in the blanks for the coded racism of all this. Okay. It's New York city. Leroy is a fast talking jive talking New York street guy. Okay. <laughs> and he stumbles on some gold and I'm like, and I'm sitting there going, <laughs> Leroy is, you know, no, I'm not writing this picture. This picture is already racist. Fuck you. you know? But um, that's the kind of pictures they would pitch to us. I, I literally, I ended up writing a picture for Disney called Talk Fast, which was about the black radio business. And I still ended up writing, per their guidelines, a picture about a fast talking young black guy who breaks into the black radio business. So, so, so basically they're plotting ideas to you and then you write a script. Is that the they were pitching things to us? We also could pitch things to them. I'd come in going, okay, I've got a script about the 1931 squadron of black women aviators in Alabama who later went on to you know, the women's air corps, you know, and they'd be like, no, 
Yeah, okay. So then we pitch them something else. Fascinating. No. I, I also they, find that, that the terminology is interesting because it's in comic world, it's like they plot it, but in movie world, it's called a pitch, huh? Mm-hmm. That's it. That's but, I mean, but it's a pitch because it may not go anywhere. It's like, picture this. New York City, right. 1990. It's a pitch. I love that. Yeah, yeah. And you learn the skill that served me in good stead later on of going in a room cold, like a salesman again, and saying, okay. You know, it's like the opening scene of the player, right? The guy right. comes in and says, the scene is devastating. <laughs> Rain coming down, umbrellas lit from below with the candles. You know, you're pitching. That's a pitch. So we yeah. did a lot of pitching back and forth at Disney, but they, were, they had a very narrow bandwidth about the kind of pictures they wanted their black writers to write. Yeah, so, yeah, you, you, it's funny. You're bringing back all these emotions and memories because I was a film minor in college at back in the '90s. Mm-hmm. So it's funny you're bringing back these um, these feelings that I've I've forgotten sure. about actually. Um, so now, uh, so you were when you were writing scripts for that Disney, did, did, so mm-hmm. Disney would retain ownership of those scripts. Is that that's correct? correct. That's correct. Okay, we and then were there were there um, uh, were there scripts that you had written as part of that program that that people may have seen later that were produced or or, or no. put into production? <laughs> I don't think any of us ever had a produced picture out of that. There were 30 writers in my class in the first Disney program. And partly it's because, I mean, it was, it was window dressing. It was like, look, NAACP, look at all these, look at all these Negroes we hired, how great we are. You know, there was that aspect to it too. But I think also um, just none of our pictures broke out. So maybe they they weren't that good, you know, I don't know, but no, the, the Disney machine kept on going without us you know mm, i see what you're saying yeah so uh, and were they as hard on you as uh, as patterson was no not at all they were they were um not to criticize but they were sort of sloppy disorganized you could you know they had this giant headquarters on their lot you know there's this giant they built this new building that everybody called mauschwitz you know because it was it looked like a giant um uh, cemetery like a thing in a cemetery where you put the the, the coffins you know above ground you know the yeah. mausoleum yeah. And they called it the mausoleum too, you know, and they had thousands of executives spending billions of dollars and making hit or miss pictures. You know, I, you know, although uh, coming out of that Disney program, I met somebody really great. I met um, Bonnie Bruckheimer, uh, who I believe was Jerry Bruckheimer's wife at some point, whatever, but she was business partners with Bette Midler oh. who was on the lot and Bette Midler, who when Katzenberg and Eisner took over that studio, Ben Midler helped them with a series of really good, successful, middle-brow pictures. She really was big for a moment. Then Disney moved on, and when I met Bette Midler, she was sitting there complaining, I helped build this, the new iteration of this studio, and now they won't answer my phone calls. Wow. Was, okay. That was the fall of Bette Midler. Who would have thought? Yeah, really. And I, I wrote a picture uh, for her that didn't go anywhere. Uh, Disney didn't make it in the end, but she was a great boss to work for. Very funny. Very... Um, you know, you know how like there's different kinds of in baseball. There's both speed and quickness. Yeah. Speed is how fast the guy runs the base paths, but quickness is how fast they're off the base. Like yeah, you know, there you go. So that Midler had quickness. That Midler was like this and was sharp with a joke. Um, so she was a great boss to work for, but our picture didn't get made. So huh. these were all touchstone. This was all touchstone brand, right? Hey, well, back then they also had a second label called Hollywood Pictures, and that's who right, I right. worked under. But yes, Ben Midler was affiliated with Touchstone. Yes, that's correct. Um, and Hollywood Pictures is no more, you know, but uh, yes. Now, when did you start writing uh, Eraser? 
when yeah. was that? And that's the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, huge blockbuster. Vanessa Williams, someone I had a crush on in high school. Right. Um, uh, what? What? When did you start writing that story? What year do you think? Okay. Well, you know, by '92, I had written a picture for Bette Miller that didn't go anywhere. I got hired by Sidney Poitier at Columbia to write um, a detective thriller for him. It was the last picture in his. He had a deal. At, you know, you've heard of vanity deals, right? Yeah. Where yeah. A lot of stars, back then Patrick Swayze had a vanity deal at some studio, meaning they give him a secretary, they give him some offices, they pay him an o his overhead, and they develop pictures which either do or don't get made. A lot of those vanity deals, the pictures didn't get made. Well, Sydney had made a lot of great pictures for what was then Columbia Pictures that turned into Sony. So they had Sidney Poitier on his deal, and I wrote a picture for him. It didn't get made, and they sort of gave him the kiss off. They, they named a building after him, and then they ended his deal. You know, oh, wow. <laughs> what was so he a nice? Was, was he a nice fellow? Very strict. Very, um, you know. I mean, I'd go to his house, and there would be the Oscar, you know, that he got for uh, Lilies of the Field. Uh, you know, he should have gotten it for Heat of the Night, but he did. Sixty-six, right. he got the Oscar. The Oscar was from nineteen sixty-six, and so many people had held it that the gold had rubbed off. Oh no! Okay. And you could see the lead. You know, um, he was a he was a very. Uh, he thought, he used to say things to me like this. He would say, no, he actually, he didn't say, he had a man to do his yelling for him. Sydney would get mad at me and walk and, and stand up and leave the room. He wouldn't, he, he wouldn't uh, debase himself to do the yelling. But he had a guy, another, he's from the Bahamas. And he had this other guy from the Bahamas who would say, you know, Sydney is very, very angry with you. You're such an impudent young man. You say anything that's on your, you say anything that's on your mind. Look at Sydney. He's very angry. I don't know if he's going to come back. I don't know. You know, then Sidney would always come back and Sidney, his way of making peace with me, because he was so furious, he'd go, you want a sandwich, kid? I'd be like, yeah. So Sidney Poitier would make me like a tuna fish sandwich. That's and, amazing. It's, you know, it's like the Key and Peel routine with Obama where he was having oh yeah. the, the angry oh. guy. Yeah, yeah. Sidney had this guy named Cedric who was another Bahamian. And, you know, <laughs> by the way, here's the, the root of it. Though Sydney grew up dirt poor in Miami, Florida. He was from Cat Island in the Bahamas. Grew up real poor, couldn't even read, blah, blah, blah. Still, from that British Bahamian upbringing, there's certain ways you speak to your social betters and your social inferiors. Yeah, yeah. So Sydney spoke to me like I was the pool boy a little bit. At the same time, I'm an American. No man is my better, right? Yeah. So even though he's Sydney Poitier and I'm very intimidated by him, he's to serve with love. I mean, he's Sydney Poitier. I'm going to speak my mind and say, Sydney, that's, I don't think that's a great idea. You know, and Sydney would turn purple and stand up and leave the room. And that, you know, because the pool boy had spoken out of turn. <laughs> you know? Amazing. So I see him around. I haven't seen him in years, but I mean, I, I would see him around after that. And he was always very kind to me. He's a great guy. He's a gentleman, but he was mad at the way I spoke. Yeah. He had a <laughs> so, British sense of social structure. It sounds yes, like. Very much. Very much. That's so it. anyway, you asked, about, so by 94, I had, I had uh, agents, they were awful, they were, they were Ghanifs, you guys speak Yiddish, you know, in, in, a, a Ghanif, like a thief. Okay. These guys would steal your front teeth. Uh -huh. They were my agents. That's the agent I got. And I was writing all this big science fiction stuff, and they were like, why don't you write something simple, like boy meets girl, something right. we could sell. And I really, I thought, I, I can't write boy meets girl, I don't know how to do that. But I could write boy saves girl. Then I could get my head around something simple. So I wanted to make, and I've been reading a lot of John le Carre. I love John le Carre's books, mm. of course. He's an amazing writer. He has good secrets that he holds back and deploys. 
like little atom bombs. I thought that's great. So I started, I, I had known all these mob guys up in Providence, Rhode Island. And they always told me as like a joke that the witness protection program was bullshit. The witness protection program was Swiss cheese. Those marshals make $40,000 a year, whatever they make, they make nothing. You slip a guy like that, a fazool, and he'll tell you where the witness is. <laughs> For a fazool, no less. <laughs> a fazool, yeah. So, so I thought, okay, the witness protection program is, is no good, but there should be like this super marshal who will save you no matter what. And, um, you know, by the way, also this is partly, partly comes from Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming's conception of James Bond, he said, was a guy who will break your neck, you know, a, a killer. But he's also St. George of England. He's yeah. also that guy. So I wanted to make a hero like that. So I created the eraser, the guy who will hide you and save you in the witness protection program, no matter what. And he has, yeah. so he can, you know, he'll break your neck, but he, he's St. George of England. So that's what I wrote that in 94. Um, 94 was the summer of speed when speed had come out and was yes. a new kind of action picture. That, True. You know, and I knew a woman who knew the guy who managed Keanu Reeves and she read eraser and she thought it was good. I mean, it took me a year to write it. I couldn't have written it without the lessons of Robert McKee and everything. Um, and uh, I thought it was a tight, good little John le Carre influence thing with good secrets and good, you know. And you didn't have Arnold in mind. when you Not at it. all. Not at yeah. all. I yeah. was thinking. And 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 because and, I mean, you've seen com the movie Commando with Ray Don Chong, and then you've right. seen The Bodyguard with Whitney Houston. Mm -hmm. Was any of this in your mind, or was it more in the spy? Um, it was darker federal genre. It was dark and little. And I thought, to me, I thought of a guy, the Eraser, as a guy you wouldn't notice sitting in an airport. Yeah. Whereas you would notice Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes. You know? True. So, so maybe so almost it's a little off script a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, um, we used to say, who's my favorite producer? The producer who buys my movie. Who's my favorite movie star? The movie star that gets my movie made. So yeah. if they'd have put Jackie Chan in the movie, I would have been happy if it got made. <laughs> That's true, too. But yeah. yeah. I would so, have the movie done, yeah. So, I'm, so here's, a, here's a true story, if you've got time. Yeah, of course. About the sale of Eraser. No, we're having a great broke. time. Yeah, keep talking. Okay. I was broke, living in Los Angeles, behind on my rent, living with a roommate. We had lived through the earthquake the Northridge earthquake it was like you know but I, I took a year to write a racer um I knew the, a woman who knew the manager for Keanu Reeves she read it she liked it she took it to this young manager at that firm and he was like a reptile his name was Daniel and he called me T he was like Tay the script is very commercial I can sell this tomorrow it's very commercial you let me sell it buddy I'll sell it I'll sell it for you <laughs> I was like yeah yeah please so the next day he put it out in like this bid situation to a couple of studios. He leaked it out, made a competitive bid. And by the end of the day, it sold to Warner Brothers in a wow. competitive situation with, with Fox. And the weird thing was, it was the day of the OJ Simpson low speed chase. Oh, okay. So yeah. the white, Bronco, white Bronco day. White Bronco. Five o'clock, there's two competing bids for my script and we're, we're sweating it out. 5.05, the low speed chase starts. It's a Friday. Everyone is glued to the TV, including us. Warner Brothers stops, Fox stops, everyone's watching OJ. And, and that took two hours going up the highway. I'm like, you're going to screw up the sale of my script. I need money. Please. They, finally, OJ drove home. The, the cops arrested him. 7.30, the, the, uh, Warner's makes the final offer. They got the script. I sold the script on that day. Um, now, are you able to say for how much you, they sold the script for? Yeah, yeah. 
It sold for a quarter of a million dollars. It nice, that's awesome. Which I mean, I was going from zero, from less than zero, right? To and I, I remember at seven thirty that night, business affairs at Warner Brothers had made their final offer, two hundred and forty-five thousand dollars. And the manager, this new manager, I just met this reptile. He goes, you know, my client doesn't want to tell his parents two hundred and forty-five thousand dollars. He wants to say a quarter million dollars. We just kick in the extra five thousand dollars. We can all go home. <laughs> and so they did. <laughs> and that was how the deal was made. I was so afraid. I was so afraid this guy would screw it up, you know. But that's how that deal was made. And, and I went from zero to a check for a quarter million dollars. That blew my mind. Yeah. The power of Hollywood. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I hit the lottery a second time when Warner Brothers slipped it to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Lorenzo de Bonaventura was the, the, the head guy there at Warner Brothers, and he gave it to Arnold on a ski lift that winter. And Arnold read it and liked it. And Warners had never made a picture with, with Arnold. He'd made pictures everywhere else in town. So they were eager to get him. And he signed on. And he called me up one night, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, I, I lived right up the block from his office. I lived in Venice. And right down at the bottom of the block was his restaurant. Sure. And Arnold called me up one night. And he goes, hello, Tony, this is Arnold. How are you? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> he says, so I read the script today. He says, very good. What do I wear? True story. And I go, and I'm thinking like a writer, I go, well, metaphorically, you know, he's a loner. He, he wears a veal of pain. You know, he wears black a lot. He's, he's, he says, no, no, what do I wear? Because, you know, in, in Commando, I'm having the short haircut. And in Terminator, I'm having the leather jacket. So what do I wear? <laughs> and I said, well, you wear a bunch of cool shit, man. You're a marshal. And you, you know, you've got a lot of your strap. You got a lot of guns. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Guns. I understand <laughs> goes, that. Yeah. And he goes, also, what is my gun? I'm like, really? What do you mean? He says, well, you know, every time I'm working also with Jim Cameron, he's giving me what is the latest gun. To, so what do I you know? So I just bullshitted right then and there. I'm like, well, maybe it's a rail gun where it's firing fucking, you know, ceramic projectiles at a quarter <laughs> a million miles an hour. Thank you. Thank you. So he hung up. And then the next day he signed on. That's he, great. He, the rail gun. It, it gets him every time, right? So this makes such sense because he was he was just coming off of true lies. Yeah. And so the guns yeah. and the wardrobe would make total sense and he yeah. invested in that. Yeah, and he wasn't thinking in metaphors. He wanted to know what he's no. supposed to wear and what yeah, he yeah, yeah. Very concrete question. Yeah. 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 Um, so now uh so were you excited to hear that he was uh part of the project or were you like okay I want I was thinking a different guy uh, you know like what, like what was it more like the commercial aspect of you was excited or was it the artistic aspect of you was disappointed I was happy to have a job right him signing on to do the movie meant the movie got the proverbial green light that triggered a production bonus for me which was the same as what they paid me to buy the script nice so at that stroke of a pen or you know like that Suddenly, I doubled my money. I don't mean to be mercenary about this, but this is so. This is what, yeah, that's the survival. That's how it happens. And then um, I immediately, a phase of my contract kicked in where I wrote a rewrite. Um, then they hired a bunch of other writers to do rewrites. They hired me back. I wrote 13 different drafts of that script. Oh, okay. So, so you, you were doing the rewrites to that. But there were, but so did thirteen other writers. Okay. For a total, when we went to the writers' guild for arbitration, they got a big crate with fifty-six different drafts of Eraser. This yeah. is all in the space of a year. Wow. And Frank Darabont wrote it, wrote on it. Chuck uh, Russell, whom no one liked, I'll just say this honestly. Chuck Russell, uh, the director, he did a lot of rewrites, tried to write everybody off the page, 
In the end, the Writers Guild awarded me and a guy named Waylon Green credit for the picture. Waylon Green wrote The Wild Bunch, great writer, wow. and a real gentleman, lovely guy. But um, there were 13 other writers, too, in addition to me. But I kept getting paid to rewrite it. I got a lot of money just rewriting that damn picture. That's over awesome. Over so it was its own, like, it, it was feeding you for a while. Oh, dude. You know, and, and the weird thing was that helped me get other jobs because, A, my name was in the paper, like you saw in Variety. He sold a picture. Yeah. But, B, the word got around that at least I acted professionally when it came time to do the rewrites. Yeah. And I didn't hold a grudge and I kept getting fired off the picture, but that's life. You know, you fight that they, another guy comes in, then you replace him, you know? Um, so suddenly I started getting other work and booking other work because I had a decent reputation. So that Did was you write Vanessa Williams character originally as an African-American woman. No, that's Arnold. You know, you notice he had uh, Ray Don Chong. He's had, um, yeah, so that was Arnold. that's cool. Oh, Arnold picture. Cause he was looking for somebody age appropriate but also um, somebody, he knew a lot of his audience was people of color. Arnold always thought that way. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I, that's cool. I like Arnold, so that's cool, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he had, you know, there, he has some, uh, how do I say this? He, one night, one weekend, we were locked in a hotel doing these reruns, and we were sweating, and we were eating pizza, and it was two days of awfulness. Then we had to drive up to Arnold's house to pitch him the new rewrite. And we go up there. Arnold has just been in Vail, Colorado somewhere skiing. Mm. He comes in looking like a god, looking like the sun is shining just for him. <laughs> Perfect. We're Perfection. All, we're all, including Lorenzo de Bonaventura from the studio, we're all sweaty and we have beard stubble. And we're like, so Arnold, <laughs> um, I think in the end, uh, the train runs the guys over. That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was it. I mean, he was, you know, he was cool like that. I mean, you know, we yeah. were like, he's a big movie star, you know? So... Etc. That's that's that story. So did, now, did you um, ever, did oh you yeah, ever talk ahead, politics with him? No, no. Um, you know, he, he, like a lot of self-made men, he had a very disdainful attitude about people maybe who weren't as self-made as him. There aren't that many who are as self-made as Arnold. So I thought he thought politicians were grubby, and sort of beneath him. He was a classic Leo. I mean, I've met guys like him, alpha dogs, big dogs. Like Bill Clinton, another Leo like that. Self-made man, you know? And Arnold uh, had a really strong sense of himself that he knew what he was doing. And other people could be kind of stupid about things, you know? So mm. there was that. So the, the, the two different sides. An admirable guy in many, many ways, but also a guy who's like, I mean, look at this guy. He's stupid. Oh, here's a story. At the we're we're, we're, we're going to add impersonator yeah. on your resume here because oh my God. you are funny. Here's a story. Beginning of the picture, everything was great. My good friend Chuck Russell is directing this picture. He's my good friend. I've been skiing with Chuck Russell. He's great. He did the mask. Okay. That was the beginning of the picture. By the end, everybody hated Chuck Russell. I went on the set one night, and everybody is, like, non-cooperating with him as hard as they can. The, the grips who are pushing the dolly are pushing as slowly as they can. Nobody, everybody hated, hated, hated Chuck Russell. And I was with Arnold one time when he called up Terry Semmel, I think, the head of the studio, about replacing Chuck Russell. And he's going... I don't know what you're going to do with this director. So suddenly Chuck Russell had gone from being my good friend Chuck Russell to being <laughs> this director. And Arnold's going, you know, I hear Joel Schumacher is available. You know, right in the middle of the picture, in the middle of production. So it was like that. So Arnold could be disdainful and, and impatient, like a businessman, like a self-made man. Yeah, yeah. That was him. So, you know, I liked it. Yeah, there's a little, so there's um yeah there, he's kind of an artist um in some ways and he's the muscle guy, Mr. Universe right and then uh, mm -hmm. 
and there's maybe a little bit of an aspect of a Henry Ford type of personality maybe in there. Self-made. And he partly won. You, if you see that movie Pumping Iron, he partly won by mind-fucking all the other competitors. That's and right. Lou Ferrigno couldn't take it. He's like, look at you, Lou. You're not in shape. Well, I'm in shape. Why are you not in shape, Lou? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've and he kind of mind-fucked him right out of the competition. Yeah. You know, that's that's Arnold, too. He can be mean. You know. Yes. Yeah. And kind of mischievous about it, too, a little bit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I was in Columbus, Ohio, in, in front of their civic center, and there's a giant steel sculpture of Arnold Schwarzenegger doing the pumping down. This is perfection. That's where he does his Arnold classic bodybuilding thing every year in yeah. Columbus, Ohio, of all yeah. places. Of all places, but they love him there. Go figure. Oh, he's big. He's big in Columbus. <laughs> um, so um, I watched Eraser last night, just so you Oh, know. my God. Um, and, uh, but there's a couple of little points I wanted to go through, which I found sure, interesting. Sure. First, um, Alan Silvestri did the music to this and the bodyguard. Did the producers kind of be like, okay, he did good music for there. Let's put him over here too. I mean, how did that, how did Alan Silvestri do? Do you know about how he got involved in that? You know, Alan Silvestri was good friends with uh, Frank Darabont. Okay. There you go. One of the writers uh, brought on and Frank Darabont was good friends with Chuck Russell. We all couldn't understand why Frank, and Chuck got along because Chuck was not a nice human being. Frank Darabont is a true gentleman and a real good guy. And so Silvestri was something they talked about together. And Frank Darabont had worked with Silvestri on other things or just knew his work. Mm -hmm. So when Silvestri, they got Silvestri, they were very happy. And Frank Darabont was happy for his friend Silvestri to have the chance to write a big action score like this with yeah. things blowing up, you know. So uh that's how that happened I that's think. how that happened and yeah. then um then there's also some you know it's not just arnold there's some really notable actors in this you got james, james coburn you got james Kahn. Yeah. um i mean you, it's cool to just see these people these are classic people these are this is for these yeah. are people from the bruce lee era here that yes. are um that are in this movie um how was that fun to see yes and you know and Kahn and coburn actually really go back i mean even like james Kahn before the godfather He's in uh, the Howard Hawks picture. I can't remember if it's Rio Lobo or Rio Bravo <laughs> yeah. with uh, John Wayne. It's not Rio Bravo. It's Rio Lobo. It's, okay, thank you. Because it's Khan a James Conn playing Mississippi. Mississippi. <laughs> thank you. So James Conn is from back then. And, of course, James Coburn from back in, like, Magnificent Seven. and yeah. So that was great. But, of course, both of them were older, too. So Coburn had really lost a couple of steps, you know. That was interesting to see. Uh, and I really admired him very much. And, and then there was... James Kahn, who was in that phase of his career where he's playing everything, you know, like this. Everything's <laughs> kind of funny. Hey, I don't know. But a big, but a big, you know. Yeah, wait. Oh, hey. hey. <laughs> so, uh, but Coburn, so, Coburn had slowed down by that point? I thought so. I mean, just but that's interesting because, like, years, years later, he was in that uh, Nick Nolte movie, Affliction, and he, he gets oh. nominated. He's an incredible. That's right. That's right. Actor. That's right. That was great. He's great in that. And that's yeah, no, like, listen, when I say slow down, I just mean, you know, you meet you meet your heroes and some of them are exactly like you think they are. Right, and then some right. of them are older and they're sitting in a chair and they're not moving that much. You know, there, there's that. Right. There's a bit of a mortality. He wasn't yeah. magnificent anymore. Yeah. My, magnificent. You know, but then. So, you know, the funny thing is. I love James Caan, but I thought he was not scary. And I right, because that, him like fighting Arnold fisticuffs. I don't know about uh, you know that, yeah, but that. but he had, but he's very charismatic though. He's charismatic, but I wish I had you know me the writers. I I had hoped for somebody more um, menacing. For instance, 
I, the, the picture was produced by Arnold Copelson. And Copelson was just coming off of The Fugitive. Mm. Uh, great picture. And Tommy Lee Jones has that great uh, combination of intelligence and a kind of menace. Yeah. That would have been a great um, you know, bad guy in Eraser. James Conn, I thought the minute he comes in, hey, he's kind of funny. He's got a likable age. <laughs> You're great well, with these impersonations. I'm amazed. You know, you know, it's he had a certain rhythm going by then that was not so scary. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, because he was James James Con kicking the shit out of his brother-in-law in in Godfather. Oh come on, James Con back then was great. And yeah, Uh, Rollerball. Remember Rollerball? Yeah, and he was great in um in in Misery. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh my God! Please, please don't 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 cut my legs. Oh, (laughs) Bottle Rocket also. Oh, that's right, Rocket. Oh my God, great in Bottle Rocket. I liked him in Elf. Oh, oh yeah, me too. Bear, right? <laughs> you know, but um, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, I, I worked for Stan Lee for a while, and Stan Lee would never say a bad word about anybody. Stan Lee, the worst you'd ever get out of him was, I, I, I didn't care for it. I didn't care for it. What, what year did you work for Stan Lee then? Oh, God, Stan Lee. It's more than, 50, it's like 15 years ago. We're talking maybe. So like 2005 or so, huh? Yeah, yeah. But what did you do for him? We were both clients at UTA. And um, I hated my agent and Stan hated his agent. That's the first thing Stan said to me. He's like, you're with UTA? I, I don't care for them. I, don't, I think I'm going to change. But he had a project. This is a good story. And forgive me, this is what I do. I tell stories. But, no, these you know. are great stories. Yeah. This is a fun podcast with Tony Perrier here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast. Stay tuned in two weeks for part two. 